is making a video. Making a video. Welcome to episode 106 of Rankin Review. This is the first of a two-part episode where my guest Lee Beckman and I will be counting down the top 25 horror movies from the 1970s. I wanted to educate myself on that decade as there was a lot of blind spots there, so in this first half we're going to be reviewing three films that I was, well, one of those three I was very familiar with, but two of them I weren't. So this episode we're going to review The Town That Dreaded Sundown, The Wicker Man, and Taxi Driver. And we're going to rank from the 25th to the 13th of the best horror movies of the 1970s. As usual, this is your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. And as usual, expect coarse language and expect spoilers for some of the movies discussed. I hope you enjoy this episode of Rankin Review. And please, tell a friend. Send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. Tell me what your favorite movies of the 70s were. Tell me what I missed. Without further ado, enjoy the 106th episode of Rankin Review. Hello and welcome Rankin Reviewers to another very special edition of Rankin Review with current champion Mr. Lee Beckman, or as you wanted to be referred to, the Beckman. Yes, the Beckman. <laughs> I'm the article of the, uh, and then you just want to go by Beckman, sort of like Madonna or Cher Beckman. No, no, no. And <laughs> <laughs> when you're this big, you gotta have the the. <laughs> okay. The Beckman is here. Yeah. Um, once upon a time, a little over a year ago, I guess. Uh, oh, it's did, been longer than that. It's been a year and change, anyway. We did. Uh, there are 25 best horror movies of the 80s. Yes. And here we sit today to talk about the 25 best horror movies of the 70s. Yes. And I just want to, you know, full confession here. Okay. I was born in 1976, yes. halfway through this decade. As and, was I. And uh, I am less familiar with the 70s than I am with the 80s. Mm-hmm. In fact, I did a lot of watching of 70s horror movies in the last few months. Yes. And as diligent as I tried to be, there are things that I have missed. So... Things I'm just going to name a few titles here that uh, are not going to win place or show because I haven't seen them. Okay. Um, Alice, Sweet Alice. Okay. Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Yep. I've been trying to get my hands on that. I haven't been able to. Yeah. I did not make it. I started Incident at Hanging Rock, mm-hmm. but I didn't finish it, so I'm not going to include that it either. here. Um, uh, the Reincarnation of Peter Proud. I was trying to find that. I couldn't get my hands to it. I didn't see it in time. Uh, those are the ones that immediately come to mind that I was actually looking out for. Yeah. Um, and through the list, I may uh, mention a couple of adjacent movies that aren't on the list, but yeah. that are of interest to me that I just want to flag yeah. for people who are in there. But I hope to get feedback on this because I would love it if I was introduced to another batch of like more great 70s horror movies. Yeah. Oh, the other big blind alley for me is the Hammer Studios. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the British the, Hammer horror yeah, movies, the, Blood of Dracula, yeah. Horror of Frankenstein, all yeah. of those ones. Yeah. Uh, I might have seen them when I was young, but not yep. Not to the point that I would feel comfortable There's talking so about. many actually really good genre horror movies in this decade. It's, it, it's an embarrassment of riches. It was a tough list to make. Oh my God. 
and even to me. and even now I'm looking at kind of going. Uh, uh. <laughs> this is the thing Beckman and I were discussing right before we hit record like what are the things that we're going to miss what's the like we'll yep. have stuff on each other's list that's going to piss each other yeah, off right? yeah. uh, I'm, I'm weirdly selfish about like 70s horror because like uh, well I, I'm backtracking and I'm looking back into it because obviously I was one to four when a lot of these movies came out for me yeah. Um, but I recently had a conversation with someone who will remain nameless mm-hmm. who referred to The Exorcist as old and slow. See, we're going to find this person and, <laughs> and slap this person silly. So um, as much as I am guilty of being you know, much more focused on movies of my own age and time mm-hmm. and uh, the, every decade you go back, I've seen fewer, fewer films, right? Yeah. The 60s, I've seen a fair amount of 60s movies, but not a ton. yeah. yeah. 50s fewer still yeah 40s fewer still 30s like maybe a couple yeah <laughs> right like yeah. uh so we're we're kind of starting for where i am really conscious of cinema yeah in the 70s and there is a bit of a, a learning gap here so mm-hmm. please send us feedback on anything we missed i just yeah. wanted to put that little sort of yeah there are so many stem. movies that didn't make the list that i can't i mean I, i'm kind of going oh my god really really like werner herzog's uh, Nosferatu is not on my list, right? And that that kind of I can't believe I, I'm I'm saying that the Stepford Wives I think is a pretty terrifying story. That's not on this list. Yeah, it's not um, on my list either. Not, neither, neither is Eraserhead. Right. So like, like these are movies that you know I think are very chilling, very disturbing. The Longest Day I think it's called that Australian one. Right. Uh, or is it The Longest Weekend? I can't remember. It's but that couple get get lost in nature and nature essentially. Cosmic gets head. back at them. Yeah, you weaken from hell. Right. Uh, that's not on not not on this list. Um, it's just it's really hard. Um, I agree with you as far as the embarrassment of riches, but yeah. I also raise you because the seventies was such a strong era for film, generally yeah. speaking. Yeah. I think that they understood spectacle, they understood pageantry. Yeah. But they hadn't really got into the psychology of filmmaking as deeply until yeah. you got into the seventies. Okay. And that's why there are some psychological thrillers on the list. We're going to actually review Taxi Driver. Yeah. And a lot of people don't consider that a horror movie, but yeah. I've always thought of it as a horror movie. Yes. And I watched the documentary on the 25th anniversary or whatever edition DVD yeah. and Scorsese himself refers to it as a horror movie so oh, yeah. my position well, feels vindicated in that way yeah there's but, a, there's, you know, I'm sorry there's, uh, there's a lot of similarities or, thing, or themes they're exploring in 70s horror that is wonderfully intelligent to look at and just the psychological dimension to film made yeah. films that uh, like uh, were structured as a thriller, which yeah. you could argue maybe Taxi Driver was yeah. feel terrifying and yeah. visceral and real in a way that they hadn't. Yeah. So there's a few items on my list that people might say is that an according to Hoyle. No, no. There's, there's a couple. Yeah, I have got I've got a couple of those. Um, but we'll see. We'll see again. Uh, it, it's tough. Like I have this feeling like someday I'm gonna get into hammer horror and then yeah. I'm gonna feel the need to revise this whole list, right? Yeah. Or you know, there's there's these odd ones out that someone's gonna give me an email and say, "Oh, you haven't seen blah blah blah." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like oh, but um, I'm, I'm I'm confident with my list right now as far as movies that I have personally seen <laughs> from yeah. the '70s. Yeah. That doesn't mean this is the definitive best of '70s list, but I think it'll be worth you know filling your ears with. Yeah. No, um, one thing I, I want to talk about before we, you know, sort of send it off is just sort of 
the, the themes and also sort of the images being explored in this time. Like I said, it was a very experimental time of filmmaking that I don't think America will see in quite some time right now. There seems to be peaks and valleys of it, right? Mm-hmm. But this is the 70s with the era of big budget movies that felt like independent this movies. This is the beginning of, of the Hollywood blockbuster, summer blockbuster. Yeah. Well, Jaws right? sort of signified that in. But yeah. at the time, they were making pretty experimental mainstream movies. Yeah. That went away largely for the 80s, came back a little bit in the early 90s, yeah. and then the pendulum has swung back to the spectacle, to yeah. the Transformers, to the you know, yeah. crowd pleasers, right? Yep. Yeah. That's just the age that we were yeah. in. They were also very uh, obsessed with psychics and the, the sort of supernatural. And psychiatrists. And, yeah, and psychiatrists as well. I mean, yes, yeah, psychology was being, pathology was being deeply explored at this point um, as well. But they sure seem to be, you know, obsessed with that. But the films itself almost have a dreamlike quality because there was also the examination of, you know, what, what do the dreams, dreams mean and all that other thing. So there's a lot of movies that have, even like the aesthetic of it, it's very hazy and hypnotic and dreamlike. And that's something that for most of these movies, it's really, really consistent. At the risk of sounding old at the age of 42, a lot of these movies require what the young and these don't seem to have, which is patience. And attention, yeah. 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 Like there's a lot of movies that will sort of let you sort of seep into the atmosphere of the movie and just yeah. sort of let it sort of envelop you slowly and it will take a good half an hour, 45 minutes yeah. to really start to cook. Yeah. And this YouTube generation would find it old and boring and that's so heartbreaking to me. No, it's see, this person just needs, no, no, <laughs> but we won't, we won't go there. But it's interesting you talk about the psychological bend to it. I absolutely agree with that. In fact, in most of the movies that we're actually going to review, yeah. there's some sort of psychological layer to the movie. Yeah. Uh, I guess we can mention the movies we are going to review. <laughs> uh, yep. We're going to talk about Brian De Palma's Carrie. Yes. We're going to talk about Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Yes. We're going to talk about uh, one of British's first true uh, cult horror successes, The yeah. Wicker Man. Yep. We're going to talk about a fascinating uh, adaptation of a William Goldman novel called Magic. Magic. Yep. We're going to look at cult <laughs> figure of a film, <laughs> I guess. This is one like, I hadn't seen yet, and I thought, yeah, let's, let's talk about this movie, yeah. because <laughs> yeah. it, it deserves watching. So, The yep. Town That Dreaded Sundown, yep. and I would like to take this moment to apologize making you watch the town. <laughs> yeah. And of course, for a little bit of Canadian content, we're going to talk about David Cronenberg. Yep. And The Brood. Yep. Such a good movie. So we have like a lot of psychological stuff and a lot of different stuff to talk about in the yep. reviews. Yep. But is there anything you want to say before we dick, dick in? No, dick before in. we duck into this particular project. And yet that homosexual undertone just comes creeping right in. Okay, no, I think we've already said too much. Okay. And we've been talking for way too long, so let's start this right. Do it. Jenkins, age 19, brutally attacked March 3rd, 1946. Howard W. Turner, 29. Emma Lou Cook, 17. Bodies discovered in a wooded area on March 24th. Roy Allen, 17. Peggy Loomis, 15. Both found dead April 14th in Spring Lake Park. Floyd Reed, age 34. Murdered in his home on May 3rd. Mrs. Reed shot twice, but survived. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as the Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. 
husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the phantom killer struck. For four months, he held an entire city in the icy grip of terror. Now, Charles B. Pierce brings this incredible, shocking, and true story to the screen in the town that dreaded sundown. I'm sorry, Beckman. Yeah, all right. Uh, part yeah. of doing this Here 70s go. list was that uh, I wanted to watch a bunch of 70s movies that I hadn't seen. Mm. So I know I couldn't get enough done to be completely informed, but I wanted yeah. to be better informed than I was. Yep. And there was a recent remake of this film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Which is so much better than... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wasn't 100% on board. Like, this script is a little bit wonky for me. Yeah. But as far as technical execution, I thought... Yeah. But it was a really well-made yeah. slasher movie. Yeah. Um, so it made me curious about the original. Yep. So here we are talking about 70s horror movies. Yeah. And we kept on reshuffling and redeciding what we were going to review. And I was being a pain in the ass about it, like mm-hmm. I sometimes can be. And uh, I decided, yeah, we're going to do The Town that Dreaded Sundown. Because yeah. I haven't seen it. And I wish I'd done a little bit of more research or due diligence before I, mm-hmm. I, I, I made that call. Charles B. Pierce is the director of this yeah, movie. He did In that. In '72, he did *The Legend of Boggy Creek*, which yeah. is another movie I reviewed not very favorably on the podcast. Yeah, and knowing that he's the same guy who directed *Boggy Creek* makes a lot of things make sense about yeah. this movie. Yeah. The fact that it doesn't really know if it's a narrative film or a faux documentary, docudrama. I think yeah, is the, term the fact for it. that most of the cast seem to be friends of his as opposed to legitimate actors. Yeah. The fact that it takes local legend and lore, or in this case a series of killings by either one hooded man or several hooded men that, that, that did occur in the Texas or Canada areas. Yeah. Uh, so he's taken all the different stories that have sort of come from that incident, much the way he did with all the stories about the creature from Boggy Creek. Yeah. And he has slapped together a very, very amateurish <laughs> film about it you know what works for the movie occasionally I think and I said similar things about Boggy Creeks are the accidental spookiness of yeah. just retelling true events the image of that hooded man who reminds me of you know Friday the 13th part 2 yeah. or like a clan member yeah. or some scary fucking you know redneck yeah. dude yeah. that image is always going to be strong yeah. And on the backdrop of the Zodiac killings, which were still, yeah. you know, very, very much in the public consciousness at this yeah. time, there's a little bit of an exploitative angle to it. Yeah. But well, between- the first killing, actually, is, I thought was kind of similar to the opening killing in, in, in the Zodiac. It's, you know, a hooded killer looking very similar. Yeah. Walks up to a, a, a sort of couple making out and proceeds to stalk and eventually, well, damage if not kill them. Well, my opening salvo of criticism is in the four years between The Legend of Boggy Creek yeah. and 1976, this one, The Town is Suntown, I feel like the director has not improved in any way. <laughs> His instincts, when they're wrong, they're just so horribly wrong. When, it's, when he's focusing on the story of the killer, when we see the killer himself and the attention to certain detail, I mean, he's played fast and loose with other facts, I think the movie is works as a as a slasher, it's right. one. Of, it's and it's one of the first. You know, like, uh, it made money. I'll just say that. Well, this and, was his bread and butter, and he's got yeah. all these like cult films. Boggy Creek is a successful movie. This yeah. is a successful movie. Yeah. 
It's got a 6.1 out of 10 rating on IMDb. And yeah. I find that IMDb users tend to be really hard on horror movies. Yeah. And I really honestly have a hard time seeing where the love is coming from. We were talking about how most of these movies we're talking about, and a lot of movies in the 70s, have psychological depth. Mm-hmm. This has none. None of No, that. but the, the story structure, I think, is... This might have been one of those first... I don't know about docudramas, obviously. Not even, I wouldn't say that. But it does get meta, where the killer... Uh, not only... you know We only see his boots, but at the very end is in line to see his, his very own movie. Yeah. Which is sort of, you know, he's still out there. Because they didn't actually catch the killer. And is it a docudrama or is it a straight movie? Because well, the movie keeps jumping the reel. And, and I... Yeah. yeah. And that's where I think some of the poor choices came. If you're going to hire any recognizable actors that you need, are clearly actors for something like this, that wall is broken because you know it is fiction. Ben Johnson is the most, uh, I mean, sort of, well, he's from the Wild Bunch. Visible name at the time. I mean, he was a somewhat box office draw, but even that guy who's in V, what's his name? Uh, Andrew Pine. This is one of his first big movies. Uh, you know, at that point was known as you know a great stage actor. So he's got to eat. I get it. I get it. I get it. But it's one thing that actually hurts the movie. These should have gotten not recognizable actors. So I think that was the one wrong move there. But I got to tell you, when they, they do the whole Keystone Cop, no, no, it's just no. This movie is a hard, dark, horrific story. Don't add any sort of not even like I wouldn't say comedic elements, but like just screwball comedic elements. Charles G. Pierce, the director, cast himself as Patrolman Benson. Yeah. The yokel idiot comic relief thing. Yeah. So not only was it a bad call, it was completely driven by the creator of this yeah. film, right? Like, yeah. okay, we've got some pretty high suspense and we're, we're basing this movie off of uh, authentic murders that yeah. happened in... Uh, but while we're at it, let's throw some Dukes of Hazards humor into yeah. this fucking thing. Yeah. No. No. You no. and I talked about uh, Last House on the Left, the old yeah. Wes Craven movie, having doing the same thing. Yeah. Like where I think Craven thought it was so hard that the violence and the rapey stuff. Yeah. That he needed to counterbalance it with some goofy. No. And the goofy becomes so much more vulgar. Yeah. Because it's juxtaposed with yeah. it, it makes you feel like you shouldn't take it seriously. Yeah. And if it's, uh, you know, based on true events, maybe you should take it a little bit seriously. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just just go dark. Be nihilistic in your darkness and nastiness. Just, yeah. No. No. Uh, and it didn't leave me with that feeling like, oh, the killer's still out there. I should be afraid. Yeah. It just left me grateful that the fucking movie was over. <laughs> I got to give credit where credit is due. It has one of the most ridiculous kills I've ever seen in a movie. And, yeah. And they changed it. I mean, in the original story... When it really happened, this woman actually got sexually assaulted by her saxophone that she used. They're coming from a concert. Oh, Jesus. So they decided to change that, obviously. <laughs> it, it, you know, as sort of you know, Did it need trombone. To be there at all, though? <clears throat> I, who knows? Anyway. The woman was assaulted by a musical instrument. How yeah. can we exploit this for cinema? Yeah, well. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Either do a straight take on what happened yeah or make an honest but could they show a woman getting actually violated by a no, saxophone well you wouldn't want to show it right so, yeah but if you're doing like what happened you could you know she was a musician and yeah. you know he follows Beaten her to, to death. her house yeah. and like you don't have to get necessarily into the specifics but or if you are you can do it like they did the Zodiac film and yeah. just be as factual as the facts available will yeah. allow them to but 
I've never seen Death by Trombo. No. As ridiculous as it is, and it's... But should we see Death by Trombo? I don't know. That was one know. of the scenes that didn't sit well with me in the uh, remake. remake. And then at least when I saw the original, I guess, like, okay, well, I guess it was a scene that they felt they needed to include. <laughs> What's a famous kill? Right. You know, some you know, internet nerds cite that as one of the best cinematic, horrific kills. It's just another thing that breaks the tone. Like, this should be frightening, or it should be, like, uh, a, a fascinating... Procedural it's bizarre. Like what it's happens. bizarre, but in the wrong in the wrong ways. It just seems distasteful to me. Yeah. At least with Boggy Creek, you're dealing with essentially an urban legend and a fairy tale. Yeah. In this case, you're dealing with five people were murdered. Yep. Real people were murdered. Yep. And this is the movie that's going to quote tell their story. Yeah. To me, though, the most horrific elements, and like I said, when this movie focuses on the actual hunt, both with them both with the killer doing his hunts and Ben Johnson, you know, actually physically hunting this person. I think it works. Um, that sequence where this is all for the Gilligan's Gilligan Island fans <laughs> out there, Marianne, Don Wells. Uh, and then in real life, the person did survive as well is like hunted and butchered. She really is butchered, but somehow makes it yes. out and is alive. That whole sequence to me is pretty terrifying. Mm. I got to give that props there. But it is one of those few and far between. It felt like the movie had already shot the bed for me by that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, okay. was, I, was, I, yeah. I was like really off put no, by I, the movie quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, it doesn't, aside from not having any clear tone or clear narrative or, you know, standout performances, it doesn't even really have an ending. And I guess they were. Boxed, well, it's very sudden. Yeah, they're kind of boxed in because you know the phantom killer was never caught. Yeah, they didn't even know if it was one guy or a couple of guys. Yeah, like they just don't know anything about. What yeah, is, the cops. The movie ends with the cops sort of you know definitely with their hat in their hands and kind yeah. of going huh huh what and then it then cuts to this long tracking shot of all these feet and then it focuses on the killer's feet and you hear that breathing again and then it pans up to you know the town that dreaded sundown on the marquee. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there are elements that work. I don't want to totally dismiss the film, but all in all, it's, it doesn't work. It, the execution of it just falls so hard. Usually with cult classics or quote classic horror movies, when I find them, I don't always like them, but there'll be a scene or a performance or yeah. a moment that makes me go, ah, this is what people talk about. This yeah. is the thing that makes this movie a, yeah. a point of interest. Yeah. And I honestly, like, I would encourage people to not watch this movie. <laughs> like, okay. Like, for me, it just, it's a miss. Okay. If you're well, I, watch, I agree it's a miss. If you're going to watch one movie that this guy did, I'd say watch Boggy Creek. Okay. It's got, like, a Disney educational film kind of amusing quality to it. And the fact that it's based on a Bigfoot creature makes it a little bit easier to digest, I think. Yeah. But all of the decisions made in this movie is wrong. And, and again, like... He really hit something with Boggy Creek, this uh, yeah. this almost documentary feel where he collected the stories of the community and just put them in a movie very okay. sloppily. Yeah. Uh, he's doing the same thing four years later, much worse. Okay. Okay. Fair. Well, I, I agree. I, this movie's not good. Uh, and some of the choices made by him are just, just such the wrong choice. Um, I do think when the killer is on the hunt, it's got some raw power and pathos. But I agree. But, that hood, right? Yeah, but I do agree that everything else, almost almost everything else, is like nails on a chalkboard kind of. 
And the opportunity to make something scary was everywhere in this movie. Yeah. The fact the that story could, itself is based horrifying. on a true events is Texarkana, nineteen forty five. Yeah. And uh, you know, or the paranoia forty six, my bad, yeah. The paranoia that it would instill in the community, right? Yeah. Some guy in a hood is randomly killing folk and yeah. uh, you got a heavily armed and paranoid community and, and yeah. that can breed badness. There's all sorts of opportunities. You know, None of them are... are, are one way that I thought this film could have worked, because when they focus on the community and how they're terrorized by the fact that this person is out there, I thought it would be a really terrifying w- way to tell this story, is that it's just it follows one of the victims. I think that even the woman, the woman who survives it in the house, her story is terrifying, and how you know at night she's listening to the radio and hearing about all these things, and, can, and you could focus on her relationship. Yeah and especially with her community, and it, the last act where it ends with her being hunted and you don't know whether she survives, I thought that would be a cool way to tell this story. Because that, that right there is, is yeah. the true fear. You know, uh, everything with the kitchen sink was thrown into this. Yeah. And uh, I think like I think he got really lucky with Legend of Boggy Creek. Okay. He was just able to keep on making movies. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, yeah. like, I, more power to you, but... You gotta change your game. You gotta yeah. improve. You gotta, you, you know. Were there any sort of other doc- docudramas like this, though? I, I mean, that's that's the thing where I think. I think that they were things that emulated Boggy Creek, but I think Boggy Creek was sort of uh, bedrock for that. For that horror docudrama, I think that see that not by, that might be one of the reasons why this film is still is in the sort of cinematic lexicon. People still remember it. Um, I think it was that might have been you know one of those first that way. Yeah, but. Yeah, no. The overall execution is just... Going back to what I said about Wicker Man, as far as, like, there's some stuff you gotta get over. Yeah. Like, there's definitely stuff you gotta get over, but unlike Wicker Man, I think that Wicker Man provides you a really good payoff that makes the fighting through the the sludge kind of worth it. Yeah. Whereas, (laughs) it's not not worth fighting through this one. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, And I hate to be that mean about it, but once again, I'm sorry that I made you watch this. Uh, You are forgiven. <laughs> movies from Here the 1970s. Here we go. What was your, it's not your least favorite, but what ranked number 25 on your list? Well, at starting way at number 25, I have Donald Camel's film adaptation of Dean Koontz's The Demon, well, actually just Demon Seed, there's no the, but Demon Seed. Okay. Um, the seven, it's one of those films where time has not been overly kind to it. But the ideas presented in it are more terrifying, and it also has a really, really amazing performance from Julie Christie, yeah. who, who it's 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 kind of like the entity in a lot of ways, uh, where uh, this woman is trapped in an unbelievably awful existence, and she can't leave the house, and she's trapped in it. There's something very terrifying about having your home invaded. Right. There's something scary about it, and it sort of well, it's betraying you in a lot of ways. 
uh, the fact um, the ending is also quite shocking. For the, I'm not going to spoil it for you listeners, but the ending is quite shocking. And it's in need of a reboot because the, the technology of it uh, or the, the props of it, they're very dated. Right. And it kind of hurts the power of the scene, but once again, it's the idea of it that's just... <laughs> so, hats off to Demon Seed. Very good. Uh, again, that's one of those movies that I've seen, but I only had like a vague memory of. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it didn't make my list. Yeah. Um, but... I don't, I don't know if it would have made the list either way. I guess, who's to say? Like, that's one of the fascinating things about revisiting films so many years on. Sometimes your opinion completely changes on yeah. it. Um, yeah. My number 25, and I think you'll find a lot in the bottom, like the 21 to 25, yeah. um, are ones a little bit of either a gray area for me because I don't know if it's an according to Hoyle horror movie yeah. or because... Um, it deserves recognition, yeah. whether or not my feelings of it really yeah. like match. But at the bottom, I'm putting a sort of tie. It's two animated films oh. adapting Douglas Adams' work, uh, okay. Watership Down ah. and the Plague Dogs. Okay. These are two animated films about animals being put through absolutely brutal torment. And let's pretend you're a little boy who grew up in small town Alberta named Larry, and your parents give you a copy of Watership Down to watch because they figure it's an animated movie about rabbits. And let's say that in this movie there's a psychic rabbit that foretells the destruction of the Warrens. And let's say in this movie there are rabbits that tear the throats out of other rabbits. Let's say in this movie (laughs) that there is ridiculous bloodletting and an overall theme of doom and uh, duty and, you know, facing everything up to and including death itself. There's a black ghostly rabbit that will lead one of our heroes to the other side at the end of this movie. Yeah. It is not for kids. <laughs> now, is it a horror movie? Well, I don't know if you could honestly say it's a horror movie, but it was fucking horrifying to me. Yeah. Uh, he made a follow-up, The Plague Dog, which is less recognized, similar style of animation. And in this movie, they have it's animated, but they put dogs in vats of water and have them swim laps until they drown. Damn. Resuscitate them then throw them back to swim laps in the vet until they drown. That's the opening of the Plague Dogs. Happy, happy right? times. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying? Like, this is personal to me. Maybe this is like the Road Warrior pick from the 80s. But yeah, like, no, no, there's a, there's a couple strange picks on here. That, 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 I just found those movies really upsetting and horrifying, and I felt the need to mention them on my list, so that's my 25. Yeah. All right, so at number 24, and this film's more for, I guess, the, where it, how important it was in history. Um, but at uh, number 24, I have Blackula. Oh, nice. <laughs> and you do a whole, what, 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 what? Here's my argument for Blackula. Not only is it, like, this film's a lot of fun. It is a hoot. You, I don't think you'll, you won't find it scary, but it knows what it is. Um, you know, a lot of sort of disco music. Uh, it's, a bla- it's an exploitation film. But have you heard of the Saturn Awards? The Saturn Awards, yeah. Yes. Well, if you look at the history of the Saturn Awards, the very first uh, time they had the awards that, that, that the top horror film of the year was, wait for it, Blackula. <laughs> yes, that's true. This the, the very first film to win Best Horror, and this is, you know, the year before The Exorcist came out. Uh, Blackula won Best Horror Film, so I'm just saying that for more his, historical context. But also, Blackula also started a subgenre of what's called black horror films. Mm. This is like the beginning of it. There's a long history of it from like Blackenstein, Ganja and Hess. Some are good, some are fun, some are boring, but for what it's worth, it established its own genre. Yes. 
So this is the beginning of it, and a lot, you know, tales from the hood, yeah. Um, and of course, all the way to like this year's and very, very, very good horror film. I know it's not the '70s, but even Get Out mm-hmm. owes a big, huge debt to Black Yilla. The, um, the film is a lot of fun. It's very funny, but and you know, got, got a couple of chills. Yeah, that's my memory of it. I remember thinking it was sort of silly and fun. Yeah, so it, it is. It's it, actually a lot of fun, and it also respects its ghouls. Like it does treat them sort of well. And there is one sort of uh, I found kind of chilling scene where uh, one of the women that has been bitten by uh, Prince Mama One Day, I think is his African name, uh, but Blackula has now been turned into. Um, you know, she's left at the morgue, taken out of the freezer, and dethaws. And you know, of course, comes back as this raging vampire. You know who, and she at this chilling scene, she wakes up and her eyes are just huge and her face is white, and she's running down this hallway and just bites into the more uh, the corner who's just gotten off the phone with our hero detective, if you will. I thought, damn, that is kind of creepy. Hmm. Um, so I put here number twenty four, Black Yellow. It's a lot of fun. Not the most politically correct of movies, but they once again of its time. Right. Uh, but also the actor who plays Bakula, uh, who sadly, whose name escapes me. Uh, I don't know but we can find uh, out. I, I have it here. He's got such a presence. Um, what's his name? Uh, William, uh, William Marshall, that's who it was. William Marshall. Yeah, you know, I just, I don't know. There's something about him that he's just very leering a lot of fun. So, Blackula, folks. All right, 24, another possibly controversial pick, but on both sides. There are people that say this should be higher on the list, and there are people that say yeah. this shouldn't be here at all. You can find it as either Zombie or Zombie 2. Okay? It's a Mario Bava zombie picture, yep. Italian thing. Yeah. And it's most famous for uh, a scene in which a zombie and a shark do battle. Yeah. And it is really, really worth seeing for that scene. Yeah. And there's some pretty good meaty, you know, yeah. Italian violence type of scenes. Yeah. And there's a lot of exploitative nudity. And if you're into that sort of thing, I mean, it's 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 got all of that. Yeah. I, for me, I don't know that I think it's a good movie, but I think it's a movie that as a zombie horror fan, you yeah. kind of uh, owe yourself to at least give a pass on. <laughs> okay. Some people really, really do love it. I also just wanted to mention peripherally to this, the reason it's either Zombie or Zombie 2. Yeah. Uh, zombie is actually a Dario Argento recut of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Um, so in overseas markets, this is Zombie 2, and in this side of the ocean, it's just Zombie. Okay. But if you can get your hands on the Argento cut of Dawn of the Dead, mm-hmm. that is also worth a look, because he just took all the raw footage and cut his own movie out of it. Mm-hmm. There are scenes in there that aren't in Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. There are alternate takes of different angles of scenes that you've seen in Dawn of the Dead, okay. and it's a much more sort of thinned out, quicker version of Dawn of the Dead. It's like 100 minutes instead of wow. 125. Yeah. So that's worth a look, but in 24th position, Zombie 2. Mainly for zombie versus shark. Okay. So at number 23, I have the very strange and odd and still hypnotic um, British horror film, The Wicker Man. (laughs) Um, When it first started, I didn't know I was going to like this movie nor find it creepy. But then I'd say about the... I'd say no, even after after the first arc of the story has been told, uh, something just sort of switches and there's just this underlying dread all the way building up to the shocking final. Um, I don't want to say anything more, because obviously we're going to talk about this more deeply. Yeah, we're going to review it. But uh, at number 23, I have The Equalizer's starring role. <laughs> <laughs> the Wicker Man. At 23, 
I have the only Dario Argento film, which will be included on this list. Yeah. And again, it's uh, another one of these important horror movies. I recognize that it's beautiful, but I've never found it particularly frightening. I, 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 I just think it's kind of pretty and arty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're into art house horror, Suspiria is like the crown jewel of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been on record on the podcast as saying that I'm not the hugest Argento follower. Like, mm-hmm. I appreciate him getting Dawn of the Dead made. I like his cut of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And I like, you know, his contribution to the horror genre. But if Suspiria is his best work, um, I'm, I'm not, boil- not boiling over with enthusiasm, but I recognize it as an important work of 70s horror. So here it sits at 23. Okay, at uh, number 22, I have the first of a couple giallo horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, the film that you talked about is on this list. Uh, but uh, uh, the first off, and it's, it's a little, this is one of the two movies that if you don't know about it, you, and you have, to, you have to seek it out a little bit to find it. it YouTube has it, but uh, if you do get a copy of it, no one really knows this movie. And it's called, uh, it's an Italian, the Italian uh, horror movie, The House with the Laughing Windows. Mm. Um, the story itself is also just kind of chilling and, and terrifying. Basically, what it is is that um, this art, art restorator um, is sent to this town to go and uh, basically clean up and fix this uh, uh, fresco painting. Uh, and there's this artist who used to do all these paintings. You did these immaculate scenes of you know torture and murder. Like they were just hauntingly re- re- realistic, and no one knew how he's getting these amazing images until finally, and this is in the past, the town figures out the, that this painter and his I think two sisters uh, were killing all these people, and he was you know painting them. So of course something happened to him one night, and he just disappeared. Sounds sort of a reminiscent of H.P. Lovecraft's Pickman's model. Yeah, anyways, anyways. Uh, and just the opening minutes of it is just basically, the sound of it is just terrifying, where they're showing shots of this fresco that, the, that this art uh, restorator is going to you know, fix along the way. And as he does, he discovers more about the, the mystery of what happened that night to, these, uh, to that artist and two sisters because they just disappeared. Um, and soon realizes, and there's this twist ending in it that is just, what? Hmm. Uh, I've never seen it, so no. I can't speak to it. it, it anyways, the opening minutes it, it, it is shots of these of this fresco and the sound of the murder that uh, both you know, the sisters and this painter are doing, and it's very well done. The sound of it is just it stays with you, like it does burn into your memory hmm. quite a bit, uh, and then it kind of goes all the way to that twist sort of ending that I I, I honestly didn't see coming, so that was also very refreshing. Um, it kind of lulls a little bit in the middle, like a lot of sort of Jallo uh, films, where it has usually this kind of lull of it. But it, it just also has that aesthetic that is just hypnotic and nightmarish. Um, so check out uh, the house with the laughing windows. There's something about the dubbing and the the, the color of those movies. Yeah, uh, it's something that got in my head at a young age. And again, part of this is me watching these when I was too young. Mm-hmm. But there's something that just always felt artificial about Giallo between the fact that their lips didn't mouth match their words, mm-hmm. that the colors were so loud, that everything. I don't know. I don't have a lot of Italian cinema on my list, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. In 22nd position, and this will surprise you. But I don't think you could deny the visceral effect, the visceral horrifying effect of David Lynch's Eraserhead. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that, that's not on my list, but yeah, it's 
I mean, I, I guess I just gave the crown jewel to of art house horror to Suspiria, but I guess Eraserhead would have to be in that discussion. Mm-hmm. This story of this strange, ghoulish man who wants to become a father yeah. and ends up parenting this thing, yeah. and this creepy as fuck dancing girl inside his radio, and just all of this uh, unrelated, horrifying imagery. I mean... I've said a lot of mean things about David Lynch, but uh, I mean, I will give him this. He's the real deal. I don't think he's a poser. I think that, you know, he takes his art pretty seriously. And it's hard to deny that that Eraserhead doesn't have some moments that just stick with you. Yeah. Like, it's almost a traumatizing film. Does that make it good? I don't know. But it certainly makes it memorable. So, yes, uh, at 22nd position, I will put David Lynch's that shit crazy <laughs> like I can't underserve how crazy it is yeah eraser head okay well at uh, number 21 uh, a film that you could argue is not a horror film but at the same time um, I think is very much a terrifying film uh, about a trip that goes horribly horribly wrong and that is John Berman's classic Deliverance. Mm-hmm. This is a trip through hell where masculinity is ripped and destroyed bare uh, and you know, I don't know. I don't want to see too much. I think you, you, we could review this movie. I mean, that is John, and also Burt Reynolds is the fucking bomb in this movie. But it's there's this one scene. of the few movies where Burt Reynolds lives up to his reputation, reputation, as far as I'm concerned. He was a huge superstar who's made like four good movies in his fucking career. <laughs> like, yeah. no, okay, that's that's maybe unfair because I haven't seen every one of his movies, but. Most of the Burt Reynolds joints I've seen have been terrible, mm-hmm. which is why Deliverance is actually... And how good he himself is in it, like... Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a solid choice. Uh, in 21st position, I have a tie. Okay. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about my love of Richard Matheson. Okay. I came late to the game to Richard Matheson as far as, like, reading some of his short fiction and mm-hmm. his novels. Um, and I've always been a big fan of Stir of Echoes, that mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon ghost movie, which is based off one of his novels. So I want to give a little shout out to two movies, The uh, the Haunting of Hell House okay, and Steven Spielberg's first motion picture. Yep, Duel. see it's on my list, it's on my list, oh, I, go. I've got it higher. Um, they're both adaptions of Richard Matheson and they both have sort of good and bad qualities. Yeah. They're so very 70s yes. that they fit snugly on this list. Like yeah. if you want to know what the feel of a 70s movie is, yeah. uh, the, the weird experimental close-ups in Hell House and canted angles yeah. uh, are really good. Uh, also, i got to give points to Hell House and its efficiency. In an, in an age where horror movies would take 45 minutes to get started, yeah. you're in Hell House's front door by the end of the opening credits. Like They, they move in that yeah. movie. Um, so yes, Hell House and Duel, The Legend of Hell House and Duel, and I just want to give a little shout out to a made-for-television movie called Trilogy of Terror. Okay. I couldn't honestly include it on the list, yeah. because the first two stories are kind of snooze-inducing, but the third story, where Karen Black gets this Aztec voodoo doll thing yeah. that comes alive and chases her around her apartment, is fucked. <laughs> like, <laughs> seek it out on YouTube. It's not an easy thing to get your hands on, yeah. but it's called Trilogy of Terror. And yeah, you can watch like the last half an hour and just yeah. skip the rest if you want. But yeah, for, for my 21, The Legend of Hell House shares the spot with Steven Spielberg's duel. Okay, at number 20, I have the batshit crazy 
Phantasm, Don, Car- Don Coscarelli's Phantasm. I think this film is actually a lot smarter than people give it credit for. I haven't, I've only seen the first two, but I understand there's there's the whole story arc that goes all the way up to the, they just ended it recently with Ravenger. The some of the special effects hurt the movie. I mean, it is really campy what they're going for, but there's some pretty ter- terrifying elements to it. It's just I'm just happy this film exists. Yeah. It is Phantasm. Yeah. That's a solid choice. Mm-hmm. Um, it appears on my list. It actually surprised me how high it managed to creep on my list. But yeah. it, in 20th position for me is another movie that we're going to talk about. Uh, it's called Magic. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was one of those movies that I've wanted to see forever. And I finally, you know, did. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. Like, yeah, it's got good. A, I've got a hard copy on its way to me in the mail. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't want to get too much into it because we are going to review it. But... Yeah. Anthony Hopkins, man, so good in it. Is fan fucking fantastic. This is like movies. young, hungry Anthony Hopkins giving a shit about the performance. I will put it blow to blow with any of his other performances. It's so good. It's very, but we're not gonna like just yeah. We'll we'll get into it yeah. when we talk about the review. Uh, the only reason that it's not ranking higher for me is that because it's such a steel trap of a of a screenplay. Yeah, you can interpret it as either a horror movie or as a psychological thriller. <laughs> like yeah. it really lets you take what you want out of it, which yeah. I think is so smart. Uh, so yes, uh, for me, twentieth position is magic. I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood. to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. Where is Rowan Morrison? If Rowan Morrison existed, we would know. I suspect murder. Sergeant, I've already told... In the name of God, woman, what kind of mother are you? That can stand by and see your own child slaughtered. You are the fool, Mr. Harvey. You're liars. Uh, despicable little liars. So Wicker Man was released in 1973. Yeah. I think I mentioned this when we were doing our ranks of the movies when we talked about mm-hmm. Wicker Man, but it, even though it's 1973, I feel a real 60s vibe, mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah. There's uh, something a little bit stoned about it, a little bit like we'll see the experimental, alternate... edging on funny, but not because of the story that's being told. The alternate title I had for this was The Worker Man, or Brackets, or How I Stopped Worrying About Paganism and Got It On. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm trying to like warn people coming into Wicker Man, because... It's considered a classic horror movie by a lot of people, and I understand yes. why it's considered a classic horror movie. Yeah. But for a good portion of this movie's running time, it really doesn't feel like a horror movie. This movie would not work today as a movie. I know they tried it in 2006, and they replaced <laughs> the fear of paganism with the fear of the matriarchy, but... I don't know if I would say you couldn't remake The Wicker Man successfully or update it, but... Whatever changes you'd make would have to be different. I just, I just think there's there are certain stories of a time and a place. Yeah, 
You could do a good cult movie, which, I mean, like this essentially is, but... I want to prepare anybody who's going to watch The Wicker Man for... It's a bit of a sit, and it's a weird sit. <laughs> yes. There's songs in it. There's really strange costume choices. Yeah. There's really long pregnant pauses in the film. Yes. Like, there's something really self-consciously arty and free love about the movie. Yes. I think it's one of these movies that it is... It has the like, the like the most weirdest opening title track song. Right. That, that doesn't feel like a horror movie. No. Like, not since Ravenous had I kind of went, what is this score to this movie? Now, I don't know if all of this is to lull you into a false sense of security so that when yeah. the ending snaps, and we will talk about it when yeah. we get there, that it really does hit home. Yeah. But this is a movie that is, I feel in a lot of ways, redeemed by its last 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, it's not that I hate everything that came before it. It's yeah. that it, it confuses me and I don't understand it and... I've talked it about is so off kiltered and just off key. The tonal shifts really kind of throw me. I kind of, I sort of believe in picking the type of movie you're making it and, and and playing in that court. You know yeah. what I mean? And this movie, yeah. The thing, the, 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 sorry to interrupt, but the thing I sort of thought is, what happened if the, the director changed his mind and really sort of laid it on melodramatically and gothic and and you know spooky then we'd know right off the bat that you know something is amok so and it wouldn't be wicker man yeah and I, I and that was one thought i kind of had well because i was kind of it, it did jar me and like this isn't not at all playing like a horror movie and it had me worried good thing that it changed but then i thought about it well if we went the other way i don't think it would be as powerful or i think the classic horror film it's called today yeah so, I don't know. It's one of those... I have to concede that, to me, it is a flawed movie. Yeah. But that the ending does redeem it. Like, yeah. it does successfully pull it out in the, in the last act. Yeah. Uh, the story concerns Edward Woodward, who's known mainly on this side of the ocean from the TV He's show. He's a very pious man. The Equalizer. He's a virgin. Yeah. He's a middle-aged, super religious, virginal police officer yeah. who's come to, you know, investigate... <laughs> yeah, and boy, does he come to the wrong place. Well, he's tempted, right? Tempted? That's, oh. the, that's the really interesting thing about this movie. Like, I feel like part of... Everything we see in its own way is part of the ritual. Yeah. Every step of fucking with him is yeah. part of the ritual. Yeah. Every step of testing him is, is part, part of, of the, the ritual. ritual. Yeah. Like, if he succumbed and kicked down the door and, and you know, was had sex with this you know mm-hmm. <laughs> seductive mm-hmm. this this woman does this crazy naked dance in yeah, the room it's next erotic to him. it's yeah. one of the most erotic scenes in, in film um and you can see it's ripping him apart like yeah he, it's it's testing him to his yeah. full limit yeah. but he stays strong yeah what's interesting to me is that if he had sex with her I think that he would no longer be a viable candidate. Well, yeah, that for, that was the, the one thing. Man, yeah, right? like if so he'd th- actually been able to have sex with that, then woman, he would have saved himself. He'd be no longer this pure, perfect sacrifice. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they kept on almost trying to corrupt him. Yeah, and it's interesting because you think they don't want him to become yeah. corrupted. Yeah, then they have to start all over, over again. again. Yeah, and then but, that ceremony would be null and void, which doesn't make sense. But I mean, it's very specific. Part though. of the, part of the ritual, I guess. Yeah. yeah. They lead him down paths, and um, that's the sort of scary body snatchers angle to the movie. Is yeah. nobody in the community doesn't know that this man is never going to leave this community, yeah. right? Like yeah. he is winding up the clock on his life, and everybody he sees knows it 
except yeah. for him. Yeah. And that's where the horror creeps into this story. Yeah. And they're so polite yeah. and nice about what they're doing. Yeah. To, to, <laughs> well, right? I mean, yeah, wouldn't you? But yeah. <laughs> Would you like a sausage? You know, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, even like Lord Summerside, played by the great Christopher Lee, we should get to him. Yeah. Is like totally tempts him. I, I think when, when he visits his house and he sees those people doing that weird naked ceremony, he, I, I think he invites him to join or something and just. Plenty of casual nudity in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> that orgy scene that starts off in the first 15 minutes, you know, after that night when he first arrives on the island and has dinner, it's creepy. It's just like, I mean, it's very sexual, but it's just, it's also creepy. Like he walks out of a restaurant and sees. A field of people just going to. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. and uh, yeah, again, it's a, a real test and uh, a real struggle for this really super pious religious man that yeah. uh, he has to, he wants to do the right thing and get to the yeah. bottom of things here, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it's it's really, really uh, testing him. That's one of the things that makes the film horrific, though, and then, which is why I don't think they can make that film today, because it, it is so... There, there's just a lot of free sexuality. I mean, I'm sure they could, but it wouldn't... I don't think it would play in mainstream theaters. Well, it didn't play in mainstream theaters originally. This is sort of, like I said, the, one of the first real snowball effect yeah. uh, horror releases. And like yeah. I said, it was paired with Don't Look Now when it toured the States. Yeah. It stayed at the time. Yeah. And it found its audience. And yeah. people still watch and talk about The Wicker Man today. Yeah. And at the time it came out, it was... Yep. Yeah. It came and went, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that's true of a lot of movies that stay with you. Like, for all of its flaws, Wicker Man sticks in your craw. It stays yeah. with you. Yeah. Like, uh, so I, I, can't, I can't just dismiss it, even though I do have problems with it. Yeah. Christopher Lee, who I've always liked, is interesting. As he's probably getting close to middle age when he's doing this movie. But yeah. to me, as long as I've been alive, Christopher Lee's been that old guy with the yeah. deep voice, yeah. right? And he actually called this one of his favorite movies to make. He really, really liked that one, and yeah. uh, he got paid almost no money <laughs> for his time on it. Yeah. Um, and I guess he is, if there was one sort of poster child for this pagan community, yeah. it's, it's the Christopher Lee character. Yeah. So he's simultaneously very warm and very uh, yeah. open and very, you know... Yeah pious in his own way just yes. in a very different way than yeah than he's very welcoming and movie. articulate and and uh yeah the whole time he's setting this guy up for a terrible terrible death <laughs> yes and even deals with uh, edward woodward's character's insults like when they first meet up and have a face-to-face -face, it's like yeah. so yeah you, you see him as a true gentleman and lo and behold that's so not the case <laughs> Things that I do think work as creepy that don't have to do with the very end of the movie yeah. is some of the animal pagan masks that yeah. we see them wearing. Yeah, um, we start seeing them like the as the festival's getting closer, they start showing up in the background a little bit here and there. Yeah, and uh, as he's being led to the sacrificial mount, uh, pretty much all of the villagers that we see have these weird, yeah, expressionless animal rabbit masks and horse masks and yeah and apparently this is all very authentic to the pagan pagan rituals yeah. the wicker man itself is an offering that would often be made to keep the fields yeah the the bounty of the fields you know guaranteed yeah um what was but that? there's something about masks that i've always found troubling i think i'll talk about it similarly effective in, in magic when we talk about yeah. that uh with the dummy but how they have no expression and every expression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a very hyper-stylized, that's 
expression that can scare people. You can just, uh, it's like that The Strangers movie. Yeah. Just the shot of somebody standing in the dark wearing a Halloween mask and it's not fucking Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> just, no nope. thank you. There's a lot of no thank you there. How nature says do not touch. Yeah. What was that Hitman horror movie that came out some years ago, early two thousand, like sort of mid two thousands? Hitman horror movie. Yeah, those two hitmen that are on that they've been assigned a whole bunch of series of murders by we well, by cult we find out by oh, the end. Yeah, I know the British one. Yeah, I think that owed a huge debt to this movie. Right. Even the mask looks sort of similar. I, I saw them both recently, and I'm like, mm. so the Wicker Man's had an effect on a lot of filmmakers and horror filmmakers. and I think the whole idea of like an ancient cult that somehow managed to either re- reappear yeah. or that has been hidden and still existing yeah you know that's good fodder for horror yes another thing that this reminded me of was the first uh, Last Exorcism movie yeah um, where an entire community has yeah. has totally jumped the needle on Christianity yeah but somehow managed to keep it on the down low yeah and it's an idea that's popular even today I can tell you it's that so many today. kids Kids love the Illuminati to, to like unhealthy, obsessive ends. And so, religious extremism is something we are still dealing with yes. every single day. Yes. So, I mean, it, it's still a relevant movie. Yeah. Um, is we there should, anything we, you want to talk about before we well, get to the end of the movie? Um, I do think no, no. I, I really like this movie. Um, what was the name of the actress, the, the young actress that is actually hired to seduce him? She was also very good. Diane Silencio yeah, played I think Rose, she... and Britt Eklund played Willow. I think Britt Eklund is the chick who did the dance. Yes, that's her. Yeah, apparently she was kind of a, a big 70s star for a little bit and then disappeared into the ether somewhere. I think she's actually in The Long Goodbye, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I haven't seen The Long Goodbye. There's a documentary on the disc where yeah. she talks about how she's not happy. Uh, they used half of her for the dance sequence and half of her was a body double. Yeah. And she didn't like the yeah. extra junk in the trunk that the body devil had. Fair enough. Like it was yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, well, no, she's really good. Um, I do... I understand her as a sexual temptation. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so the Wicker Man is a huge wooden statue that is filled with, you know, timber, animals. some animals, some some of the best fruit and stuff that have been yeah. taken from that year's harvest. And this one man, this pious, religious, Christian, He's pure as kind of almost insufferable, but he's still very relatable. He is uncompromising in his faith. Yeah. And to them, that's exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. A strength in his character that they can exploit yeah. for their sacrifice. But yeah. they break his limbs and you. put him at the top of the wicker man and yeah. set it at the fire at the bottom. And the animals is that extra added touch because they're all screaming because the, the, they know death is coming. And while the animals and this man have a slow, terrible, burning death, Mm. This crowd joins hands and prances about in a circle, singing these jolly, warm songs, which we have been hearing throughout the movie. Yeah. But now in this context, <laughs> it's just become terrible. Yeah. And I have to say, Edward Woodward really delivers in that. Like, when he first sees the Wicker Man and everything falls into place, like, yeah. he realizes what's happened, yeah. what's happening to him, and yeah. what's going to happen, happen? to him. Yeah. And, uh... 
It's horrifying. <laughs> it yes. is fucking horrifying. Yep. And as much as we may be frustrated by his character and his lack of compromise, yeah. he does not deserve this. No, he does not. <laughs> Apparently there's a, like a written uh, novella sequel to this where he actually escapes. It starts with oh, you no. know, the thing burning and he gets free, which of course would make no sense because his arms and legs are broken. The up. entire point of this, this story yeah, is, is lost if he lives. Yeah, no, he like he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, he's dead. He's dead. Um, no, he's, even the whole, like, when he's running throughout the, the, the city towards the end, like, from there on, it's pretty terrifying. And then there's no goes, help for him. And yeah. We know it. Yeah. Right? And then he goes to that tunnel and there's that infamous speech that Summerside gives to him. And that's it. Where at that point he realized that he's been seduced here the entire time. And even that girl who may or may not, it's not his daughter at all. No. no. I think it was all, all a manipulation. Yeah. 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 But uh, it's effective again. Yeah. Dated but effective. Yeah. Um, it's I, brutal. That that burning is brutal. <laughs> it's it's awful. Like the animal screaming was the one thing that really got sort of got to me. I mean, him screaming is also yeah horrific. Just but it was just the chorus. Christ. Of, yeah. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but just even the animal screaming, there was that was just like a clearly sound of. Hell. And you know, you, it, it, it echoes back to the burning of witches and yeah. like public hangings, where yeah. it would became like this family thing. Yeah. You'd bring your kids in a picnic lunch to watch the hanging, yeah, or the burning, yeah, <laughs> and everybody's on board and totally okay with it. No one questions it, so it doesn't even read as weird to them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Can't believe you know Christopher Lee when he was making this, he thought he was making a comedy. That's not the first time I've heard that about actors getting on set and thinking that, you know, they're making this melodramatic, either dark comedy. There is a very thin line between humor and horror. It, it works. It's pretty weird. There are scenes where when yeah. they were shooting it and he was looking at his costume and what yeah. was going on. And I can yeah. see, like, this is out there. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. It is. But the horror kind of closes its fist on you at the third act. Yeah. So I think it's worth fighting through. I mean, some people may like that weird. No, no, no. No, I, I like, I'm, I'm, I, I did enjoy it all. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason for all this sort of weird lunacy house had that sort of same thing where it started off with this really over the top melodramatic cutesy story and not, right. not that I think the story here is cutesy but just the total tonal shift uh, that somehow works somehow your 19th ranked horror film from the 1970s okay hold on hold on hold on number 19 this is not the first of of this writer's stories on this list i do think this is when stephen king was really starting to hit his prime just at storytelling but uh i have i think probably well no maybe not his finest hour but it's definitely a solid 
and originally on the air uh, as a TV miniseries instead of a, a movie. I mean, when it's released now, they've got it all condensed to like three and some hours, so it is now a movie. But Salem's Lot, Toby right. Hooper's, I think, a really solid movie. The only thing that really hurts it is the sort of t- you know sort of seventies TV version budget of it, and there's some pretty hammy acting, but. It's great to see a young Fred Willard wearing some of the worst wardrobe you'll yeah. ever fucking Interesting see. Interesting character, too, yeah. Um, and I know he's different in the book. There's some classic stuff in that. Yeah. I've talked shit about Toby Hooper, but that neighbor boy tapping on the window, yeah. uh, some of those weird smoke scenes and shot and reverse shots, like there's there's some good stuff in Salem's Lot. And yeah. uh, yes, we will be talking about that for me as well at some point. Uh, in 19th position for me, I have the directorial debut of Clint Eastwood in Play Misty for me. Mm-hmm. He plays a radio DJ who has a regular female caller who requests that he play Misty for her. Mm-hmm. And they get into a relationship and she becomes increasingly obsessed with him mm-hmm. and her madness is laid bare. Uh, the actress who plays the psycho, whose name's escaping me at the moment, she's the mom in Arrested Development and she voices Archer's mom in the TV show animated series Archer. Mm-hmm. It's funny, like she's had another sort of career boom in the autumn of her, of her, of her life, which is great. But um, it's, it's an interesting movie because it puts... Clint Eastwood in kind of a more romantic role. Yeah. It's the first time that you've seen him directing a movie and he does it really well. Yeah. And although the stalker psycho genre was going to get kicked to death by the time we got to the 90s. Yeah. It's 77, I think this was, or something like it's that. It's the, the first one of its, of, its, of its ilk. And it's Clint Eastwood's first uh, directorial mm-hmm. movie. It almost made my list. Yeah. I... There's a scene that's burned in my mind where he gets yeah. cut, his hand gets cut with a butcher knife. Yeah. And it's it's not as graphic as they could show it. We yeah. get a reverse angle on it. But I saw it with my dad when I was like 11 years old, yeah. and it has never left my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I had to find a place for it. Another adjacent to this, I won't count it on this, but I thought it was one of these movies that only I was intrigued by, but uh, another Clint Eastwood one. He didn't direct it, but it's called The Beguiled. Yeah, yeah. That's recently been remade by he Sofia d- Coppola. He directed the original, though. Did he direct the original? I don't think he did. I but think... Oh, anyway. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, I haven't seen the remake, but I've always had a weird affection for... Uh, that how, could be also seen as a horror film in its own way. Yeah. It's it's so dark and so psychologically twisted that it, it, it's, it almost qualifies, but... Uh, Play Misty for me is on the list, but if you like Clint Eastwood, uh, definitely check out The Beguiled. Yeah, see, a lot of people kind of come down hard on Clint Eastwood, but he's a really, really good director, and he's directed a lot of films that a lot of people have not seen. So, And again, that was his, Play Misty was his first movie. It was yeah. in the 70s. It's not yeah. like he just started making movies in the 90s. Yeah, you're, you're, right? People seem to think that he started with Unforgiven, and he's yeah. been making movies for well over 10 years. No, you're right. Don Siegel directed The, the Beguiled. There you go. Yeah. Anyways, no, I, I hear you. All right. So in 18th place. In 18th place, I have another Italian horror fo- film that's not a giallo, but it's also creepy. And one that, you know, time has been kind to it. Um, once again, the idea behind it is utterly chilling. And I also think that Stephen King might have borrowed quite heavily when he wrote Chill in the Corn a couple of years later. But that is... And there's two names for it. You, can, you know, here it's called Who Can Kill a Child. Yeah. Uh, the other one, I, it's Island of the Damned. It's also been released as. Right. Um, the idea, if you can get past the pretentious, you know, opening credits, which are about 10 minutes, explaining all these different wars, and we're supposed to leave, like, the reasons why the kids, you know, start killing adults is because they've been slaughtered through all these adult wars, if you will. Um, 
there's something else more supernatural going on with the kids that it, almost like a virus that infects them. Zombie-ish, yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> sorry. But the scenes where you, you could see both the mother and the father, you know, breaking down to the idea that they're going to have to murder these children if they are to survive. It also has a horrific moment, and they had been sort of broadcasting it, like subtly more and more as the story goes along, that the mother's pregnant, very pregnant during this time this island and of to course the stakes. yeah and what eventually does kill her is the child inside of her right. as the father watches it like it's just there's so many horror horrific ideas that are, are put out I have seen that one and I no. find like that's intriguing in concept but less so in execution um, I mean it might be benefit of being first and have that infamous reputation there's yeah. a Christmas themed movie called The Children yeah, which was, is very which terrifying is quite terrifying and treads the same material in a much more salient way I yeah. think um, but give it points for being out there and first so yeah I understand why it's on your list. It didn't yeah. come near to mine. <laughs> I, I just thought it was just horrifying. Anyways, yeah. Um, number 18 for me, you've already talked about it. It's Phantasm. Yeah. It's interesting to me is that's a movie when I first saw it, I, I wasn't that big on. Yeah. But for some reason it sticks with me. So then I, I borrowed it from the library a couple of times, watched it again. Yeah. I reviewed it with Jeremy for the podcast and yeah. we both spoke fairly favorably of it. Yeah. And like, it's, it's this really sort of scrappy... It's like, made with love. I'll, it's I'll say. scrappy independent horror the way it should be. The fact that it's so crazy and the fact that it barely holds together is yeah. in a way part of its charm. Yeah. You've never seen this story told before. No. And, and uh, you can tell that it's been made with zero money, yeah. but so much love. Yeah. So it's almost a movie that's impossible to hate. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to say whether or not it lives up to its reputation, but yeah. I will argue that... It gets better for me with each viewing. Yeah, so I agree. It, the more I see it, the more I, I love it. Yeah. So uh, it fought its way to 18. Phantasm. Yep. Uh, number 17. You have already mentioned this movie as well. Richard Matheson is such a great storyteller. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, also a very young, talented Steven Spielberg. Right. Really knocking it out of the park. I've actually had... I mean, nothing as dramatic as what goes on in this story. And apparently this is his last written screenplay. Uh, before he, you know... Well, he wrote the screenplay for uh, Poltergeist. Did he really? Yeah. Because he sort of claims, at least what I saw, that, well, I guess I got my facts wrong. There you go. <laughs> well, maybe he had been sitting on Poltergeist for a while. Who maybe. Knows? Anyways, I don't know. This is, But he talks about duel, and I, I, I've experienced rage, rage incidents as well, so I can identify with some of the things. Not as dramatic as, as played out here. Right. And it's such a simple story. Yeah, but I guess I didn't mention it. This dude is being utterly hunted. terrorized and hunted right. by this semi-truck that appears to have no driver. Yeah. We know he's got boots and feet and everything yeah. and we see the sort of sort of side profile a little bit. But, but we don't get any access to the driver. Yeah. No, and that's Duel. Yeah. Anyways, I never did say the name. St uh, Steven Spielberg's Duel. It's a great, uh, you know, like 109 minutes or something. Not even. I think it's 90-something. Right. Um, and it's, it's tight. It's, and I love the music is more sound than it is uh, you know, melo me sort of melodic music, whatever. Um, well, and it definitely shows up Spielberg as the director out of the gate because yeah. this is storytelling through cinema. There's not a ton of dialogue. Yeah. It is usually a one-on-one -on -one confrontation of two people who cannot communicate with each other. It's yeah. action-heavy, but yeah. yeah. But, and again, Spielberg is yeah. hard. He's he, he's fairly consistent. Even yeah. the bad movies he makes are well-made bad movies. Yeah. Um, 
For me, it's 17th place. We're getting into some classic exploitation territory here, but I had to make room for Dante's Piranha. Yay! <laughs> Piranha ranks higher for me. <laughs> um, I mean, I talked about it in the Water. I'm Monsters almost kind of episode. disappointed that it's just low it's for you. Low. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, its entire existence is predicated on course of Jaws, yep. and half the reason people came to get got in the seats was, you know, Cheesy violence and titty. And the movie delivers that in as fun a package as you could imagine, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, scrappy, no budget, it, no frills. The piranhas don't even look that great, but I still think this is a deeply enjoyable film. So, yeah. 18th position for... Oh, sorry, 17th position for a piranha. Okay. Uh, number 16, um, I have Richard Attenborough's uh, Magic. Uh, both the novel and he did the screenplay by William Goldman. Yeah. Um, I will argue, and I don't, I don't want to talk too much about this because we're going to talk about it at greater length. I think it's a more tragic story than it is scary. Right. Uh, and it's uh, the performance out of Anthony Hopkins and even like Anne Margaret. Like, I, I, gotta, I gotta give her kudos too, are so, so good. But, <laughs> we'll talk about the review. But the one who really does it for me is Burgess Meredith. <laughs> Anyways. It's a good show. Yeah. Uh, I have a suspicion that you're going to admonish me for having it this low okay. on the list. Okay. At 16th, I have David Cronenberg's The Brood. Okay. Um, we're gonna again. This is another one that we're going to review, but it has to do with experimental science and psychiatry. Yep. And uh, the relation, the parent-child dynamic, let us yeah. say, yeah. and the fear that we have that we're destroying our children and yeah. the psychological and physical damage that that can incur. Yeah. <laughs> also, there's monstrous dwarf children. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll talk about it. I mean, it, it has all of the hallmarks of the early Cronenberg and it being very rough around the edges in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. But a lot of people will give Scanners the thing as the movie that put Cronenberg on the map. And I'm yeah. going to go on record as saying, for me, it's The Brood. Yep. Yep. The Brood is awesome. All right. Uh, number 15. I love this movie. I think it's such a beautiful movie to look at. It's um, Baroque imagery in this movie. The, the the school itself is just gorgeous to look at. And the soundtrack by the is it go just Goblin is so loud. Like You should watch this movie you know, with the volume turned up. I think the, the sound really helps this movie. But that is Dario Argento's Suspira. That opening kill is just one of the most scariest kills in any horror film for me. I don't know what it is. It's when the eyes open up. And you can even see in the background there's that shot that he's got, you know, of the towels flapping. And you know it's coming from there. But when it shows up, I don't know, just with that, that Goblin soundtrack and Watch Her Murdered that way. I would love to talk about this movie at some point okay so well, um, it will get its proper day in court um i have a tie okay in 15th place okay the reason they're ties is they're uh movies made by big directors that maybe aren't according to hoyle horror movies one of okay. them you've mentioned is the deliverance yes the other one is straw dogs ah uh, sam peckinpah sam peckinpah that's an ugly movie yeah i that, that was also bouncing in between my list but didn't make it because basically it's it's a back heavy movie like mm -hmm. the all of the violence happens in basically the last 20 minutes of the film yeah but it's a slow car accident you see this coming yeah you see this coming you see shit getting worse yeah 
Yeah. There's a really uncomfortable sort of pseudo-rapey scene between... Well, is it or is it not a rape? Is sort of the controversy yeah. of the scene. She's into it until the point that she's not, but at that point, it seems to have gone. Anyway, it's it's really uncomfortable stuff, and it's really interesting seeing uh, Dustin Hoffman go from this meek, bureaucratic-looking fellow mm-hmm. into this full-on fucking warrior yeah. who's protecting his home by any means necessary, yeah. and how you're cheering for him, but you're still feeling mixed about this violence that you're seeing yeah and deliverance you already talked about this uh, utter undoing of sort of masculine energy yeah this group of boys that are going out the woods to you know kick nature's ass mm. and uh in, in encounter some hill folk i mean deliverance i think basically invented that idea of crazy rapey hill folk like yeah. it is it's a ridiculous sort of conceit is but it people, dull, Larry? Is people it? believe it and they believe it because of deliverance yeah. and uh you know i mean the fear of being raped is very real and for for women for sure but this kind of made it real for men too yeah uh it's a powerful movie it's hard to deny it and uh Again, the vengeance that gets down in the movie, you're cheering for them, but it's also horrible. Yeah, <laughs> so, it is an ugly, ugly movie if you've not seen it. So, folks. Deliverance and Straw Dogs share 15, and I understand that people might be yelling at the computers right now saying that they're not horror movies, but I suggest you take a hard look at them. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, there they are. Okay, at, we're at 14, are we? Yep. At 14, we have, I think. Probably, and, uh, and we'll talk about this more, but this is probably Brian De Palma's most emotionally intelligent screenplay out of his movies. There's a lot of great characters in acting, and it's a short movie. Uh, and that's, you know, Brian De Palma's Carrie, the adaptation of Stephen King's really, really good novel. Well, for the first time, I will say you have a item way too low on your list, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> But uh, I have uh, I have Carrie. Yeah, it's that's another one we're going to review. Yeah, I also am biased because I love Stephen King. Yeah, but I think Carrie is a very important horror movie. Yes, and yes, we will talk about it. Okay. Um, here's a movie that you may think ranks too low. Yeah, in fourteenth place, I'm putting The Omen. It's not on my list. Oh, really? Not um, on my list. Yes, The Omen borrows heavily from The Exorcist. Yeah. Yes, it does. But it has a lot of these crazy elaborate kills. It's almost yeah. this like supernatural slasher movie. Yeah. In, in a way, I, I, I was thinking, I guess because I watched it recently, of Final Destination. There's a scene where a character gets beheaded by a sheet of glass and yeah. it almost feels like he's been faded. There's the classic scene where uh, the nanny hangs herself. In That's a creepy scene. Birthday I party agree. full of kids. Yeah. Um, it's... You know, got a, a mainstay classic Hollywood star in it, but it does not give you the ending that you want or expect. Yeah. So I understand why The Omen is respected. Uh, I put it in the middle of the list. I don't think it's like the greatest of the 70s, but I yeah. think it's in the conversation. Um, I like it. I mean, I do like it. I don't find it overly scary. I guess I, the, even as a kid, the, when I saw it for the first time, I could see the ending coming a mile away. I knew that no good was going to come right. uh, from this ending for our heroes. Um, I've never found the omen overly scary. Um, I, f- I found it entertaining. Uh, there's some things that are very, very dated and not done well, even for the seventies, like the death of, um, of the reporter in the graveyard. It's a famous kill basically where, oh, where he's supposed to be David Warner, I think is the actor's name. Yeah. 
Um, it is, it is like always, David Warner's the guy that gets beheaded. It's the priest. right beheading that. Uh, it's the priest that gets it was, speared. But through. David Warner's death I found always cheesy. Right. Uh, and then the spear I found also kind of cheesy. Anyways, it, it, I think it deserves its place in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, the movie adjacent to this that doesn't quite make the list, but I think is worthy of the conversation is a TV movie called The Other. Okay. Where this little boy uh, keeps on playing with his twin, even though his twin is dead. Right. And uh, there's a really, really awful twist to it. And it was a movie that aired regularly on TV and traumatized a lot of kids. Yeah. Uh, so if you're into creepy little kids, The Omen and The Other, definitely okay. stalwarts of the 70s. Okay. Okay, number 13. When you first uh, mentioned about doing this list... Uh, and you mentioned that's one of the films you're going to review. I didn't hesitate for a second because it's not a, in some ways conventional horror movie, but it is also very terrifying. And you are seeing the birth of a psychopath. Yeah. Uh, this was, I think, a true original film. It's probably one of the greatest American films ever made. Um, uh, Quentin Tarantino, I think, calls it you know the best first-person narrative character piece movie uh, the best of and although I might argue that with that a little bit it's definitely one of the best yeah. and that is Martin Scorsese's based on Paul Schrader's terrifying script Taxi Driver yeah no uh, you're not going to hear me fighting that we're pretty close on that where it ranks on the list but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yes to all of that yeah. uh, I, I like like Mean Streaks was also a very stylistic movie and very personal like uh, mm. Scorsese wrote Mean Streaks himself about people he knew growing up but Taxi Driver for me is mm -hmm. when Scorsese fully arrives as a filmmaker yeah. and a storyteller and a visual artist. Mm -hmm. Like, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, and Taxi Driver is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. I think Goodfellas is maybe a bigger part of that, but, yeah. but Taxi Driver is important. Yeah. So, yeah, no. We'll, no we'll, we'll talk there. more about it. Yeah. Uh, this one, again, it, number 13 for me, it, it slowly creeps up the list because when I first saw it, honestly, I wasn't a big fan of it. Mm -hmm. I thought that it was kind of a mediocre movie that was saved by a really, really tough ending. Mm -hmm. But The Wicker Man grows on me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, there's some absurdity to it. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's a 70s movie that almost feels 60s. Yeah. It's got like that. Uh, Avengers absurdity to it or that prisoner type of vibe yeah. to it where yeah. like the costumes are a little much the presentations are a little much there's actually a couple of songs like full yeah. on songs in yeah. the movie yeah the and opening track is just bizarre like it just it. I don't know whether it's jolting you to say how different this movie is going to be or what it's it's almost daring you to keep watching. I know. In some ways, like it's like, uh, like what it is. But when you get to the, you know, base story that's being told here and the manipulation of our, our main character, uh, it does become this horrifying, reminiscent of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery type of thing, but like uh, taken to an absurd extreme. Um, I get why people don't like the movie. Yeah. And it's one of those things that if the ending's wrecked for you, the movie's kind of wrecked for you. Yeah. So uh, we are going to talk about the ending when we review the film. I won't talk about it here, but yeah. this is a warning, you know, to anyone Spoilers, listening. if you've not seen this movie, you haven't seen you The Wicker Man, it. you should watch it before you listen to our review because... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the third act is the big save of yeah. the movie. Yeah. But I do think the movie is interesting, and I do think the movie is surprisingly creepy. And again, ten, ten, years, ago, ten years ago, it might not have been on the list. And five years ago, it might have been at the bottom of the list. And yeah. here it's halfway up the list. Yeah. So 
Wicker Man. It's just a little engine that could for me. Yes. <laughs> so, number 13, Wicker Man. The taxi driver is looking for a target. Getting ready. Getting organized. Preparing himself for the only moment in his life that will ever mean anything. How much for everything? 350 for the Magnum, 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. That taxi driver's been staring at us. You talking to me? You talking to me? I don't know if it's weirder, you or me. You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. Oh, yeah? You will never see a more chilling performance okay. than this. Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Jodie Foster. Albert Brooks. Harvey Keitel. Leonard Harris. Peter Boyle. Sybil Shepard. Taxi Driver. So, I'm out of the closet as far as my position on Martin Scorsese. Okay. I think a lot of people I'm are, a fan. <laughs> a lot of people are out of the closet with that, yeah. You, that does not need any explanation. That said, I mean, like, he's not flawless. He's made films that are, you know, imperfect. But, like with a lot of my favorite directors, I, I will watch his worst film and be happy with it. Like, there'll be something in it that will make it worth my time. Yes, as I believe I said before, Taxi Driver is the movie that made Scorsese. Mean Streets definitely got him noticed, but Taxi Driver made him a filmmaker. It won him the Palme d'Or. Yeah, like uh, yeah. it made him 100% legit. It, like, yeah. And I completely, completely understand it. Um, it centers around a, a Vietnam veteran... <laughs> played by Robert De Niro, named Travis Bickle, you. who spends his nights driving a cab in New York mm -hmm. and seeing every type of depravity possible. Now, he's broken. Actively seeks it. He's broken when we meet him, but mm -hmm. we see him go from broken to, like, dangerous. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think at least a psychopath, very much a serial killer. Yeah. Um, so there's the world that he sees, and then there's the world that exists in his head. And then there's the real grimy sort of New York, mm -hmm. uh, and all of which we're granted sort of access to. Mm -hmm. But the stylization, the narration, mm -hmm. the absolutely full-blooded performance from De Niro. He was really good in Mean Streets, too, but you mm -hmm. get the feeling like he dug the fuck in for Travis Bickle, right? Mm -hmm. There was nothing... Well, he, he was, was given a gift. Yeah. There was nothing he was unwilling to do for the part. He, yeah. he actually drove a cab to yeah. research it, and... Um, made great steps to make himself comfortable to Jodie Foster without mm -hmm. ingratiating himself to her. Yeah. Apparently, Jodie Foster tells stories that they would hang out, but he wouldn't talk to her. Mm -hmm. He would just basically be in the room with her. Mm -hmm. He'd take her to a diner, let her eat whatever she wants, let her drink whatever she wants, but he wouldn't talk to her. Okay. And basically, he just got, she got used to being around him. Mm-hmm. Because uh, she was a very, very young actress when she was 12 and 13, I yeah. think, over the course of the production. So yeah. she actually had a, a psychology test <laughs> done before 
well, they agreed to use her. She's playing a prostitute, and she's got some pretty frank dialogue about Don't it. Don't you want to make it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that she, she does give a really strong performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all about De Niro if you're talking about acting in this movie, and I respect that, but I also like... It's an interesting supporting cast. Mm-hmm. I like Albert Brooks playing mm-hmm. a normal dude. Everyone's really good. I even I even like Sybil Shepherd as Betsy. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not usually a huge Sybil Shepherd fan, yeah. but it's it's funny because that's where we get his sort of king of comedy kind of humor when he tries to take this woman out on a date and takes her to a porn movie, right? Yeah, yeah. You know who's really good in this movie? Peter been, Boyle? Well, Peter Boyle's really good. He's part of one of my favorite scenes in this movie. But, you know, you've been sort of like you know, picking away at Quentin Tarantino for, you know, directors that insert themselves in movies. Nope. The scene... Scorsese is in the film visibly twice. Yeah. He's actually in it three times, apparently, but visibly it's him. The scene he has with De Niro where Strong. he's... Where he is this broken, jaded, possibly homicidal man who is upset because his wife is, and quote unquote, never mind. I'm not going to finish that sentence, actually. Yeah, but, he, he, but he's upset about the relations that a black man has had. And he has no one to talk to about it except yeah. for this cab driver. Yeah. The interesting thing I like about that scene is that it's actually all Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the few scenes of the movie that doesn't completely depend on De Niro. De Niro yeah. doesn't say anything to him. He no. just sits there and looks at him through the rearview mirror. Like, In a sort of shock, but almost a green type face. Well, he would be a hypocrite to call bullshit on this guy. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, but no, it's a really, really powerful scene. I get what you're saying, though, because a lot of the times when an actor puts themselves in a movie, it's mm-hmm. kind of, or a director puts themselves in the movie, it's distracting. Yeah. Apparently, it wasn't planned to be that day but the actor that they'd originally hired didn't show up or there was some like last minute thing yeah. and Scorsese had done some work he has if you you can look him up on IMDb he's, mm-hmm. he's, he shows up in small usually yeah. one scene roles in movies he's he's not inexperienced yeah. and unlike Tarantino it didn't take me out of the movie yeah. I think if you didn't know what Martin Scorsese looked like, that that scene might just drift by and you wouldn't clock it as anything special, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, he's fine in the scene, but like, uh, the thing that makes it stand out is if you know that's Martin Scorsese, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but Quentin Tarantino will always, you know, he'll try out a really bad, you know, Australian accent or, yeah. you know, yeah. somehow draw attention to himself. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the aesthetic of this movie because w- when you first mentioned this with the top 70 horror films of all time you you said that pretty early in the conversation and without hesitation I said I totally agree yeah um this movie you know Martin Scorsese even once said that his movies all mostly most movies are extensions of the of the author's dreams if you will and if that's the case then Taxi Driver is very much a nightmare with that opening shot of smoke with that taxi breaking through that grime and and smoke and that, con- and that crescendoing sound of the snare drum and the horns, you know, put together masterly by Bernard Herrmann. It, it's, it is like, it is dark and creepy and scary, and then that, you know, Taxi just sort of breaks on through, and it's this very hypnotic, nightmarish pace and mood. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's, it, it, right off the bat, it's telling you, like, this is not a safe place. Yeah. This is new. Something something special is arriving to yeah. you with Taxi Driver. But no, if you stop me thinking about it, like this is very much a nightmare. More Paul Schrader's than I think Scorsese's, obviously. I think Scorsese brought it to life. I'm yeah. kind of glad that Schrader didn't direct it, in a way. Yeah. Like, um, I'm glad that it was Scorsese's hand yeah. present on it. Um, and I do think that the casting, going back to that, is, is spot on. Albert Brooks was mainly known as a stand-up comedian at the time. 
Yeah. Uh, and he's a funny-ish character, but not yeah. like haha funny. He's not comic relief. Yeah. He's just a normal guy flirting around at the office and yeah. dealing with this Travis Bickle character who is way more dangerous than he realizes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Um, and I really like that performance. Sybil Shepherd. I know typically she's left me cold. She's yeah. just one of these smiley actresses who smiles her way through the role, right? And. Um, I really like the dance that she has. Like, I don't know why she's initially charmed by Bickle or maybe pities Bickle, but that date that they go on is one of the most excruciating, uh, like, the, it, the cringe whole comedy thing things. is uncomfortable. <laughs> it's just brutal. Yeah, like, it even that, like, and then and even, like, the point where he leads up to, he comes back into the office and just, I screams at her. her. Yeah. Like, it's all of that is just uncomfortable to watch. Even more so when, you know, he first gets on that lady at the <laughs> at the porno theater. Like, it's just, the second you see him trying, you know, him going, you're like, no. 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 <laughs> this ain't gonna fly, dude. This man's instincts are all wrong. He's socially just brutal right he just doesn't understand the world part of it is that he's mentally ill part of it is that he's a veteran you know Um, but like the world doesn't make sense to him he sees it as a sleazy cesspool and he you know wants to thinks in very simplistic terms yeah and he wants to be a hero in it and that's where the Jodie Foster character comes in he sees this child Selling herself on the street. Well, Travis has this very Madonna whore complex thing going on, which is one of the things that's very terrifying because, I don't know, I find a lot of men have this kind of thought, especially when, when it, in their sort of beginning earnings to sort of understand women in more, you know, a sort of sexual sense in that regard. Men have this sort of, I've noticed, maybe I'm wrong, but there's this, and Freud talks about this, that whole Madonna horror complex where they need to save women. And uh, then fuck them? Well, kind of, yeah. 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 The, the, this whole, at first I'm attracted to the Madonna, if you will. And she is pure. And Travis sees... I'm attracted to her innocence, but I want to take that innocence away, from Away, yes. Mm-hmm. And he even sees Betsy. The first time we see her, we've got that sort of, you know, angelic saxophone that, mm-hmm. once again, I'm going back to Herman here. Uh, and the first thing he describes her as is, you know, the city, they can't touch her. Right. There's that whole shot. And Scorsese's in that shot, actually. Uh, and Travis sees this woman on this plateau. And I think we've all done that as at least heterosexual men. <laughs> is where she's perfect. You know, and, then, and of course. But it's clearly unhealthy. Like, yes. He's like in his 30s and yeah. she's like 14. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about Betsy. Oh, Betsy, sorry. Yeah, right. but when, when that crashes, he then goes to the, the sort of extreme opposite. He needs to save Iris, who right. is, I think, 13, 14? Yeah. In the character, yeah. at least. Um, and this obsession to, to save her, that's basically that, that's that whole psychology of Madonna and the horror. Sorry, that word. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was interesting watching this documentary on it. They were talking to Albert Brooks, and uh, he mm-hmm. was talking to Paul Schrader. Mm-hmm. And Schrader said, I, I'm sorry, man. I felt like I, le- I dealt you a crappy hand. Like mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I knew you. I didn't know mm-hmm. your character. But you're doing a good job of making him full. Mm-hmm. And Albert Brooks said how strange it was that Paul Schrader had no problem getting inside the head mm-hmm. of Travis Bickle. <laughs> yeah. right? That's not a problem. But some dude who works in a law office... Or, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, well, Schrader, 
I doing like what homework I did on this talks about you know the process of writing this. Like, he did this with a gun under his pillow. He talked about <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, but he talked about when when he first got divorced from his first wife. He was a broke artist who literally went to New York and had literally had no place to sleep. So sometimes would you know pay to go into a porno theater and eventually you know fall asleep. Like he really had this journey uh, near madness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was also doing Dostoevsky's novel, which name currently escapes me. Right. Tales from the Underground, or Stories from the Underground. <coughs> Anyways. Um, but yeah, he talks about how, you know, he got insomnia, and he, and he would actively go out and misery loves company sort of mentality. Right. But would see himself literally slipping, and he wasn't communicating with a lot of people, and just that sort of weird, pessimistic, dark cycle that just started to circle and circle in his brain. Obviously, I think that's one thing... it didn't go as far for him as No, and that's that's character. when he said that... That's You talked about that moment, that's when I needed to start writing. Writing right. writing the script and writing the story. That's what, he, that's what he claimed saved him, that thought. Well, I think one of the more disturbing things about the movie, obviously, there's a climactic shootout where uh, he, yeah. quote, rescues Jodie Foster from Harvey Keitel's pimp and yeah. all of the uh, people who are there either as employees or as customers of this yeah. brothel. Yeah. And in true to Scorsese form, we are treated to a very bloody, very grisly, fairly realistically rendered for the time uh, shootout. Yeah. And Travis takes several hits, yeah. and Jodie Foster is not grateful. She's horrified. And what's a horrifying thing that happens? Yeah. I, I always remember that scene where she screams, don't shoot him, don't shoot him, and yeah. he shoots him. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just like... And- Oh, yeah. The, 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 the violence is. They had to actually so well. taint the violence. Like they had to bring the brightness down. Yeah, but that last scene where he of the shootout where he's sitting on the couch and he brings his bloody hand to his face and yeah. he starts pulling this imaginary yeah. trigger and yeah. pretending to shoot himself in the head. Yeah. Is he suicidal at that point? What what is what is that gesture about? No, he's cracked. Yeah, like he's just waiting for the police to show right. up. And I think this is where the the final real hit lands. And again, thank you, Paul Schrader. It's, in a way, I think a similar ending that was going for an American Psycho, but way more successful. Okay. I've always had a problem with the third act of American Psycho. Okay. Um, but, yeah, in this case, not, as he, not only is he not punished for this act, yeah. he is rewarded for it in many yeah. ways. He yeah. is a hero. Yeah. Like, what he's done is, like... This. Where and he could have been the polar opposite, you know, ten hours earlier if he was successful with yeah. his original mission, yeah. and that's to take out a presidential candidate. Yeah, yeah. it could have gone either way. It yeah. just happened by complete chance. Yeah. to go this way. Yeah. and I don't think that that vigilante shootout was anything heroic at no, all. No, like, that he, was he, fucked up. He clearly went out to go and hunt these men and slaughter them. Whatever was going to happen, be it a political assassination or shooting yeah. up this brothel. He was going to fucking kill some people. Like, yeah. that was the essential ingredient. Death. Yeah. And um, the, that's where we're left with. He is released. He's a little bit of like a local folk hero for his vigilante yeah. work. Yeah. And he goes back to driving a cab. And you yeah. could hail that cab. And Travis Bickle could, you know, be there. Yeah. One thing that, that always struck me very odd about the movie is that one of the films that heavily influenced... Or it's heavily influenced and even addressed Taxi Driver is the film The Searchers by John Ford Scorsese and both Schrader have, have admitted to that and, it's, and he explains that's why there's that costume change both for De Niro and Keitel's character 
where you know when, when Kaitel is eventually killed, he's got that headband. Yeah, cowboy and Indian thing. Yeah, yeah, and of course Travis has the mohawk and has been dressing like a cowboy even earlier in the film. And in the searchers, by the time they quote rescue the girl from the yeah. natives, she's yeah. become she's quote gone native. She's yeah, one of them. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that Travis is very much the villain of the piece and is very much a racist, like oh, absolutely, like he, yeah, he, we shouldn't soft shoe that. He's yeah. not like black people. <laughs> yeah, no, like he he doesn't he really doesn't like almost anyone. Well, that's the thing. He needs something to focus his yeah. rage at. He yeah. needs something to kill. Yeah, it's so always anything other, anything different. Like yeah. the race thing makes it easy, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it was always sort of interesting to me that eventually when he does make good on his homicidal impulses is that he kills really Italian or just clearly white people. I mean, all awful... Yeah, he kills bad people, people, but that doesn't make him a good person. No, not at all, especially since... I do not subscribe to this Dexter school of thought, whereas if you're killing bad people, then you're not so bad. And in fact, he was already already a murderer at that point, Mm -hmm. because he does kill that black robber. Yeah. So yeah, 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 no, uh, that that's something that, that struck me very odd with the choices. I know that the John Wayne character and Bickle character are very similar. Like they, you know, they live in isolation, deeply racist, um, and uncompromising. Yeah, and driven to violence. Yeah, uh, so that was always sort of interesting about it. He doesn't need an excuse, but like he'll make one. But yeah. if he decides that you're the guy that's going to be the you know business end of his violence, yeah, he will invent a reason and it will be completely justified and yeah. you are fucked. Yeah, you're not going to talk him out of it. Yeah, and you're certainly not going to outfight this dude. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No. One thing I want to mention, uh, at least I want to talk about as well, is of course the infamous scene of Taxi Driver. There are many, mm-hmm. but if you want to look at classic cinema acting 101. The infamous scene, are you talking to me scene. Not in the script. Yeah, yeah. It was improvised by De Niro. There's something so authentic and raw and relatable. You see that want for violence, right? I can admit I've had conversations like that. Maybe not like, are you talking to me? But even in my youth, you you know, you have these conversations in your head where your ego has been trampled on. And like clearly at this point, Travis's ego has been trampled on. And he's doing this sort of male rage in the dark. I, I spent a lot of years being bullied as a young kid. Yeah. I, I totally had those dark fantasies in my head of the perfect yeah. thing to say yeah. or the perfect violent act to do as retribution. Yeah. I never really acted on them, or if I did, it was just made things worse. Yeah. But uh, he lives for that. He yeah. seeks out that violence. Yeah. It's not even an act of violence. Oh, no. Like, it's no, just... he, 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 like I said, I, I'm convinced he actively seeks out the misery. Mm-hmm. That's part of the tragedy of that character. He, he can't see a way... <clears throat> out of his slide, even though it's really up to him and, on this, and the decisions he makes. And this is an era where things like post-traumatic stress is not a thing. Nobody under, like, we understand that these guys are coming back da- damaged, but yeah. it's not a diagnosed thing. It's yeah. just like, yeah, yeah, the war fucked you up. A few years of war will do that, but a few years in the real world will fix you right back up. Yeah. Actually... Not no, at all. No. <laughs> this is like also this is very much meditation on loneliness, um, and I know I've been lonely in my life. I don't. I can't speak for you, obviously, but would I be lying to say that you've had you know? Of course. Yeah, there's something very raw and authentic about it, and I think this is another element that makes this movie very terrifying. Is that I do think there's a little bit of Travis Bickle in us all. <laughs> Am I wrong for that? Making that statement. I, I, there's conversation that Travis has had that he goes, oh, I've had that thought. And I think the fact that he goes to that end yeah. 
of being a murderer, but you've you've been somehow drawn into this first person character study, and there's certain elements that ring true to you. Yeah. But you, you didn't go that way. And I think that's when you realize that Travis is a very scary, dangerous individual. Well, that's it was just the what, wrong that's decision. That's what makes the movie memorable to people because we have those moments. Yeah. You know, someone cuts in line at the coffee shop. I'm like, you fucker. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's not really worth me, like, imagining beating this guy up. But I get yeah. unreasonably irritated by that. A car blurs past my house just going recklessly fast. I'm like... Children live here, you motherfucker. Right? Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. I would really like to slap some sense into you. <laughs> I won't. Yeah. But I have that moment in yeah. me where that fire just flares up yeah. for a second and says, and fuck, fuck you. <laughs> but yeah. Travis Bickle lives there. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's just where he... That's, he's constantly on simmer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes... I think one of my favorite scenes in that movie, oh, even more so tragic, is when Travis starts to realize he is going over the edge, and he's trying desperately to sort of at least fight back that slide. And he has that conversation with, with Wizard, the great Peter Boyle. Like, that scene is so heartbreaking. Because Peter Boyle sees that this guy's struggling, and yeah. he's the one person in this world who at least attempts to throw him a fucking lifeline, yeah. attempts to talk reason to him. But I think the argument could be made that he is way too far gone at that point. Like, he needs to be institutionalized. Quite possibly, but you just kind of hope that if it was... What he offers is so rudimentary and and so childish. Just go get it laid, you know, and don't think about it too much. I mean, you can see that Wizard is struggling and you can clearly see that this man... He's not a shrink. Yeah. He's just a dude. Yeah. That's what the same thing with the Albert Brooks character. I really like about them. They're yeah. just normal people. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he just can't even say the right things, it's not his fault, but and who knows, maybe he couldn't have talked him out of it. But yeah. I would like to think that the wizard character I had this he sort of envisioned in my head that, you know, if it gone the other way, that the wizard character said, Hey, why don't we go out for a beer? And I just listen. If that if the, if those words were said, who knows? But I mean, I really like Peter Boyle. It's, he's a really strong dramatic actor, but for somehow reason, ever since Young Frankenstein, has just been he's been ruined to me. Oh, he's probably putting on the ritz. <laughs> but uh, well, I'm sure I, you, I love I love you know what I'm movie. sure Peter Boyle's doing just. Fine. Oh no, he's fine. He's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, but I like seeing him in a dramatic role. Yeah. I know he's not a comedic actor, but I've always sort the of character thought character. of him. I've yeah. always sort of thought of him as a comedic actor. Well, he's been in some good movies. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, classic movies. And he he hits it right out of the park. Yeah. He does exactly what the movie needs him to do. Yeah. And if he was a maybe a more educated guy or smarter guy, he'd know to say, "Look, come pour your spill your guts to me, or do yeah. whatever you need to do." Yeah. Or he would drive him to that hospital. But he's just a guy who says, "Dude." You need to stop worrying about this stuff so much. Yeah. You need to relax and get out of your head. Yeah. Get laid. Get get yeah. you know, just yeah. shake the shit off. And it yeah. it's yeah. not as easy as that. But yeah. he doesn't know that. He's yeah. just a nice guy earnestly being nice. Yeah. And Travis Bickle does not know what to do with that. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. But you can see him struggling. Like he it's just that pain on his face. He even says, like even when he's confessing, you know, like I feel like I want to do bad things. I even think he says, "I," but I know it's wrong. Yeah. There's something so heartbreaking about that, and that to me is oddly relatable. When you, you sort of realize, you know, you're going down a path that you know is wrong. The math always ends in violence, right? I don't yeah. like black people, so violence. That woman rejected me, so violence. violence I know. That guy's a com- competition to me. Violence. Yeah. I need to rescue this prostitute. Violence. All avenues. Yeah. lead to violence and yeah. that's what's scaring him yeah. he sees it 
yeah. no matter what it is, it's going to be someone facing his wrath. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's terrifying. I don't know. And that's why I think it qualifies as a horror movie. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, I we're mean, about 22 minutes in. Is there anything else you want to say? Like, Oh, we could talk all day about this. I know. I know. I know. We should probably try and put some fences around this. Dude, wrap it on up. Do my final thesis. Uh, look, this is a classic movie. Um, I think any person who even sees films casually should see this film. Not, not even for the reasons that we've talked about here. It, it is truly an original piece. And... Even though I take homage with Tarantino's, this is probably the best first-person character study narrative. I mean, I can think of a couple others that might rival it. It is still a, just a unique film, given probably one of the best characters, scary characters ever put to Celluloid in uh, Travis Bickle. Amazingly realized by De Niro. But like just the story that Schrader wrote, from the, the lines to... You know, the structure, how it just comes out. It's yeah. just one of the best scripts. And rightfully won the Palme d'Or at Best Director and Best Picture. So and, you know, crystallized that thing of the De Niro Scorsese yeah. dynamic being something to get excited about. Yeah. This and it's and I, I think it's a beautiful movie movie to both to look and listen to, both with the cinematography and the style of editing. Like Scorsese's really coming into his own. That's what I really like about it too. It walks this really razor tight line. It's like it, it is un Deniably a 70s movie. Yeah. But it's aged really well. It's also very dreamlike, which continues this sort of theme that a lot of these horror movies have this sort of, once again, living in this dreamlike quality state. That aesthetic is very prevalent in a lot of these movies, and it's prevalent here. It is very hypnotic, and it goes in like quick jolts and then slows down again. Visual depth, psychological depth, yeah. and not a bad performance to be found. Yep. Obviously, we're not done yet. We still have 12 more uh, ranks to do, their top 12 horror movies of the 70s. And in our next episode, we'll be discussing the films Magic, The Brood, and Carrie. How's this all going to work out? What are Lee and Larry going to say is the best horror movie of 1970s? You'll have to tune in next episode to find out. If you want to send me feedback now, do that at rankandreview at gmail.com. Please seek out the show on iTunes, on Facebook. Tell the other movie friend in your life to listen to Rankin Review. As always, this is your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons saying thank you so much for listening. <laughs>